Well, friends, it's that time of year again. We got Father's Day coming up. And if your dad is anything like me, he's going to love Grady's Cold Brew. It is the best tasting coffee drink around. And if you go to their website, Grady'sColdBrew.com, you're going to see all the different options they have. Great tasting concentrates, cold brew kits that are so easy to use, even I can do it. We love Grady's Cold Brew, and we love Grady himself. He's a real dude, and he's a real friend to independent media and independent music. So if you're sitting by your computer, I want you to go to Grady'sColdBrew.com. I want you to enter promo code LATEERA20. You're going to get 20% off your first order. It doesn't get any better than that, and it doesn't get any better than Grady's. Thank you, Grady. Well, Portland, Oregon, and slow gin fizz. that ain't love, then tell me what it is, uh-huh. In a recent interview, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, said that there's a broadening medical consensus that listening to late era will make you stronger, hotter, and more resistant to disease. You know, it's not a guarantee or anything. Fauci's skeptic. He wants to be careful about making uh, sweeping claims, but the evidence is looking pretty good. So I think uh, that's something for everybody to be excited about. Thanks for that shout out, Tony. You're listening to Late Era. The podcast brought to you by Osiris Media, where we discuss the strange, overlooked, and provocative late career albums by classic musicians. Today we're going to be talking about Van Leer Rose, Loretta Lynn's 42nd, I want to say, studio album released in 2004 in collaboration with producer Jack White. My name is Andy Cush. I am a contributing editor at Pitchfork, and I play bass in Garcia Peoples. My name is Winston Cook-Wilson. I play music uh, in the band Office Culture and as Winston CW. I'm Sam Sadomsky. I work at Pitchfork. I make music as BCI, all kinds of different names. And today we are joined by a really exciting guest. We're here with Allison Hussey. She is my coworker at Pitchfork where she's written, among other things, definitive pieces on the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack and Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Um, I've been a fan of Allison's work for a really long time. She, uh, back when she was the music editor at the legendary alt-weekly Indie Week in Durham, uh, you've read her work for No Depression, Bandcamp, NPR, Billboard, she makes a mean biscuit. We're here with Allison. How are you doing? Doing all right, Sam. That was a very kind introduction. Thank you very much. Well, it's our pleasure. Sam's great with the introductions. <laughs> really great. Try. Saying some saying something nice about you off the top. <laughs> we're we're very thankful to have you uh, with us, Allison. Very excited about this. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this record. I feel like I should admit, like I wasn't familiar with this one right off the bat and so this was like a fun one to like really dive into and spend some time thinking about it's cool it seems like it's a definitive little historical piece of things in like the realm of stuff that you're interested in musically and like that i've read like a brother soundtrack type one of those releases that drew a wider audience into a certain style of like roots music basically yeah it's just interesting to listen to now like so many years on from sort of the Johnny Cash, Rick Rubin, that certain uh, kind of prestige presentation of of these kinds of things that did so well commercially. Mm-hmm. Took me on a trip back to shopping at Borders for CDs, you know. <laughs> Definitely. 
So, Andy, why do we choose this, do you think? I, th I think you covered a lot of it, and I would say uh, one other thing is, to me, it also typifies, even outside the sort of roots thing that you're talking about, a certain type of late-era album, which is like the the late era team up with like a, a young hot star who's like supposed to be kind of ushering us back toward relevance uh, sort of reminds me of an album that we discussed uh, a couple episodes ago flowers in the dirt when paul mccartney teamed up with elvis costello uh and this seem i think that this is probably the definitive album of that type or if not one of them so i think there's a lot of fascinating stuff to dig into before we get into it, I had a little prompt for the group. Uh, what would be like your dream out like artist to be the young executive producer and usher in a comeback for? Oh, so uh, wait, we're, we're Jack we're, White. Yeah, you're Jack White. Who are you picking to do mm. like a you behind the boards, make the album the way you want to type project? They have to be alive. No, it can be alive if it's a. Uh, deceased artist then the project can be a bunch of lost demos were found and you get to spruce them up how you uh, want yeah, i don't know about that hmm. do you have one in mind sam while we think about it i do and if we want to think about it through the episode we could answer at the end but my answer is that i think it would be really cool to pick like an 80s hair metal band or like an, <laughs> one of those bands like rat or something mm -hmm. and then make this really like heavy brutal scary type dark metal album for like profound lore or something i feel like if i was given the reins on a rat album we can make something really heavy and yeah, iconic you've said it hasn't been that. done yet so <laughs> that's good some people don't need sprucing you know but you know obviously i would do a randy album but uh uh, no, I, I maybe well R.I.P. Suzzy, but I, a Roach's album would be cool. Mm. Roach's yeah. album would be very cool. Yeah, they've just had such an influence on so much contemporary stuff, and they've done a lot of cool stuff. Not in the like, not too distant past, and still are putting out music. But I could see like a whole different treatment of them, like moodier aesthetic treatment. It'd be pretty chill. Um. Somebody who just popped into mind, also recently deceased, for me was J.J. Kale. I feel like his uh, kind of style of uh, production and arrangement of his own songs is always was always so idiosyncratic and, and weird uh, that it would be cool to just kind of like give him a bunch of modern synths or kind of like a copy of Ableton to fuck around with for a few months and then kind of like make a record with whatever sounds he started uh, making. I don't know if this quite answers the question, but this was already, this was like something I was already kind of thinking of the other day. I was thinking about Steve Martin as like a banjo player. Oh and yeah. I've, and I think I read something like a few years ago that, you know, he's always been a really big fan of playing the banjo, like from when he was a like much younger man, but that when he wanted to do like banjo concerts kind of around the same time that he was an up and coming comedian, that, that he booked banjo concerts and people got upset because they didn't want a Steve Martin banjo concert. They wanted like a Steve Martin stand-up show. Yeah. So I think he kind of like put it aside and then had his, you know, huge, fabulous 
comedy and acting career. And he's more recently kind of taken up with this uh, bluegrass band called the Steve Canyon Rangers. And when I've seen them, it's been like pretty hokey and like they tell a lot of jokes and it's like, it's fine. But I also just kind of would love to hear Steve Martin make a banjo record that, that like isn't, isn't like somehow attached to his like comedy career, or, like him trying to be funny or tell jokes or like be almost like tongue in cheek about playing the banjo. Like, I don't know, maybe that, that might sound just like really strange. And I, I don't think that it's a record that is like, it's not something huge that's been lost to history, but I think it would have been cool to hear him do like a weird early seventies, like, freak folk banjo record and I think it would be fun to just be like Steve you don't you don't have to like tell dad jokes anymore like you can just like cut loose and just see where it goes yeah that that sounds awesome and I would say that uh with all due respect to Sam neither is the uh brutal heavy uh rat album a you know a monument that was lost to history (laughs) (laughs) true um yeah steve martin fucking rips at banjo he really does and, uh yeah there's some like obviously he brings out this sort there's like a certain inherent humor to the sound of the banjo that he that he brings out but also uh he just plays it really well yeah he posted some clips of him like playing it in the woods i guess kind of last spring when you know things were really bleak and i just remember being like wow that actually is like really pretty like removed of everything else this is just like a really pretty sound Hmm. great well uh any updates here from people what's going on sam congratulations sam got a big promotion associate editor now at pitchfork yeah thank you yeah a lot of change afoot over here at casa de miami sammy uh (laughs) got new job um me and Hazel, I think, are hopefully signing the lease for a new apartment this weekend. Congrats. Nice. Thank you. Near, very nearby. Yeah, I'll be right by you, Winston. Moving in on Winston's turf. We can expect <laughs> a lot of That was the idea. Uh, we'll be taping in the fights. same room. <laughs> yeah. I sat um, down with my family and I was like, we, this, this is an emergency. We've got to change our location. We've, I've got to keep an eye on this guy. Hmm. But... Yeah, the biggest change is that I decided I'm getting a haircut. So wow. pretty much the whole time we've done this podcast, I've been a guy with like long hair. And now I'm going back to the old me. I'm going to cut it all off soon. So how, say goodbye to this. I'm pointing at my hair to listeners. How short? It better be really short for us to give a shit about. How short are you talking about? <laughs> it's going to be pretty short. It's like Not a buzz cut, but not far from a buzz cut is my plan. All right. Uh, yeah, that's, that is exciting, and uh, I look forward Thanks. to it. Thank it you. Seems, it seems like there's you're close to an album title there, like not quite a buzz cut or almost not far yeah. from a buzz cut. I don't know. <laughs> well, I was hoping <laughs> that Winston or Ian would put in Almost Cut My Hair as like a drop mm. while I was talking about this. It could be like a segment, but maybe it's called the Not Quite a Buzz Cut segment. <laughs> Um, I have been growing my hair Damn, out long, son, and uh, I'm happy to assume the mantle of the uh, long hair guy on Late Era. Mm. Yeah, you got to <laughs> do it. Going to change my energy up a little bit. There might be some pressure involved, but I think I can handle it. Yeah. I'll tell you what, is people kind of 
more strangers approach me now, like as a guy with long hair. The other day, a guy came up to me who was bald, and he came up to me, and he was really drunk, and he was like, dude, I need your hair. He was like, imagine your hair and my energy. I was like, I was like, I don't know you, like it's so I can't imagine, but it sounds pretty interest. Like I'm intrigued. <laughs> so get ready for that, Andy. I'm I'm prepared for it. I'm now thinking about the time that I walked to meet Winston at a bar, like the day or the day after that Winston had gone with like a full kind of Moby, like as close to the head as possible. But yeah, kind of, and horrible, I, I wasn't pre- <laughs> I wasn't prepared for it. And, and the earring, right? Actually, that time sort too. of frightened. No, this is a some. This has been <laughs> happening to good. me. This has been happening to me recently. I want to know why. Uh, you're not going to be able to provide the answer, but I've had this earring for 10 years and I went to a wedding this weekend. And everyone was like, just got an earring. I was like, you knew me. You've seen me like for six <laughs> years with this earring. Like, what is going on? You too, Sam. Again, yeah, I'm sorry. Was... I just got an earring. So uh, maybe, maybe they that's were, what I was thinking. They were uh, confused. The energy of the late era host is getting mixed up. <sighs> Jesus. You're just sorry. absorbing into like one singularity. Oh. Yeah. Like one host. I'm really sorry about all this, Allison. What's up with you? <laughs> Andy, I got to say, if you're going like the long hair route, though, you got to, as somebody who used to have like really, really long hair, it's it's yeah. a big commitment and you have to like really keep up with it. <laughs> Do you have any tips for me? Uh, you know, hair ties are just your friend to have laying around in every corner of your house. Yeah, I need I need to get on that. Uh, You know, be careful for the, the strays. I used to sometimes like roll it up in my car window. I have accidentally plugged my hair into an electrical socket before. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> you just got to be careful. My yeah, God. I'm getting just to the point where it's like getting in my mouth when I eat sometimes. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. We got to so stop. We got to stop talking about this. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Allison, what's up with you? What's the updates? Um, I guess I don't have any. No, I have very little to update on right now other than just like I've been trying to just like get outside and enjoy the sunshine and remember that like I enjoy things and I want to go places and do stuff and see people. I'm, I'm with that. So that's yeah. been cool. Amen. I think I might go see a movie this weekend, which is very exciting. Oh, hell yeah. Because the last movie I saw in a theater was Cats at 10 in the morning oh, on a Tuesday. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was, right. Yeah. That was one of my last ones. Unfortunately. And I, I'm ready to like reset that. <laughs> uh, Winston, what's new with you? Uh, I'm going insane, as I said, really totally insane. Um, this has been the busiest few weeks of my life. Part of that is trying to finish the Office Culture album. Um, but the big news surrounding that for the, as related to the podcast is I've been using a lot of auxiliary percussion on this record and uh went that to, is big news went to guitar center the other day to buy a few items and now i so now i have sound effects that i can use during the show so this what i have here you'll see is a hand-woven uh, african rattle mm. kind of cool and then here is a kabasa what are those mm. things called a kabasa mm. I don't actually know. Uh, did you do you have an egg shaker? Yeah, not here though. I, actually, I don't know. Why I didn't mention this in the Santana episode, but Pat, uh, the drummer of Office Culture, has um, Santana branded egg shakers because that's, that's a popular brand at Guitar Center. Uh, 
the Santana uh, empire knows no bounds. My updates are pretty much the same. There's going to be a Garcia People's gig the day after this podcast hits the airwaves at Industry City in Brooklyn. Um, and then another one on July 20, no, June 23rd at the Sultan Room rooftop in Brooklyn. We also have a new record that is going to come out at some point. We're going to be playing songs from that new record. I just saw the cover art for it for the first time uh, by our consistent design collaborator, Daryl Norson. And it's awesome. Love that guy. Great guy. Hello, Daryl, if you're listening. We love you. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm just happy to, that there's playing music. I, we've been practicing, GP has been practicing together and like it has just brought me so much joy to just be hanging with those guys, playing music with a group of people. I can't wait to be doing it in front of people again. Hell yeah. Sam, are we back? Are we still financial corner? Financial corner? Yeah. yeah. Are, are, you, are you back? Are you allowed to do it? Yeah, with some caveats, but... We're back, full force. Uh, this week's financial corner advice, keep your loved ones close. Uh, <laughs> just hold on tight. <laughs> I can I can see the, uh, the Dow Jones uh, the Dow the Dow is about to rally any second now after that advice it's like a shot heard around the Just, world you never know when the it's going to be the Nasdaq last time, is off so. the fucking charts How? you never know when it's going to be the last time so just love your brother give just give as much love as you can and just try to stay positive and keep a good outlook and yeah keep your uh, circle tight. Warren Buffett is sitting in his office making fucking calls left and right about buying and selling. This is a, a historic rally we're about to witness. And that's what I got this week. That is what I'm legally allowed to say. And we, there's, we went over this and the limitations of what I can and can't disclose about my financial activity. And that's what we settled on. That's what's been approved. That's this week's financial corner. Thank you. I, I, I could see you. Your eyes like sort of widen a little bit when I mentioned the segment uh, with the distinct air of somebody who completely improvised that trash. But uh, at least you're fulfilling your contractual obligation to do the segment. And now I will attempt mine. Which right. I'm not that much more prepared for, but let's see. <clears throat> oh, also, Allison, this is Winston's Impressions Corner. Oh, I, I listened to the van... Excuse me, I listened to the Van Morrison episode as part of my uh, preparation. Great. So I I woke up and I had an IV in my arm. And I was just looking at at the blood going up there and I thought, well, I got got two different types of blood cells. I got red ones and I got white ones. And I thought, well, why wouldn't I I just... Anthony Fauci, right? I mean... No. I was going to say Anthony Peters. Why wouldn't I just Um, uh, name my... Name a band's album after after these this type of white blood cell in my arm, and uh, then I thought of one of my favorite musicians of all time, one of my favorite singers, and I knew about her for years back before there were any iPhones, back before there's any of this technology. I'm just gonna let him keep going, mediating mediating our uh, our enjoyment of great art, and you know, and her her music isn't even all on streaming, but that, that's that's Miss Loretta Lynn, and I decided to dedicate my album. Uh, me anytime. White blood cells. <laughs> I have no idea who it could be. So I got a I'm going to go ahead and need more. I got a big more? hat on. I got a big hat on. 
It's like, what's that guy's name from the Rock and Tours? My hat's uh, so big. Oh, uh, Brendan Boyd. Brendan Benson. It's Brendan, Brendan Benson. Benson. It's, Brendan Boyd from Incubus. It's yes, big and wide, and uh, it's it, not Brendan Benson. It's uh, no, and it uh, oh. it's. Uh, uh, my hat is protecting me. What's the guy me. from the Von Bondi's name? <laughs> my hat is protecting me during the pandemic. I can use it as a mask. And uh, all right, I'm gonna stop you right there. Is it Jack White? It's Jack White. Yes. The image of uh, him using his hat as a mask during the pandemic—that's <laughs> at a certain point yeah. I ran out of. <laughs> I was thinking about something. It would take a Seven Nation Army to blank. Anyway, could have been a cool. Cool little prompt. Uh, maybe yeah. I'll probably would have gotten us to the answer a little faster. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yes, it's true though that the uh, I guess that's probably I don't remember that album came out like 2004. The White Blood Cells album by the White Stripes. He dedicated it to Loretta Lynn. No, this record and came out in 2004. This that record would have came been out in 2001 or something like that. 2000. Yeah. yeah, Elephant probably came out around 2004. Yeah, Jack did love Loretta. Really did. So I'll start out by saying that. Still does, probably. I absolutely hate Jack White. That's something you should know going in. He's one of my least favorite sort of figures of the modern rock worlds uh, in terms of luminaries. But I will say uh, he has good taste in music by liking Loretta Lynn, who's also one of my favorite, I think, just singers of all time, really. Just her voice is amazing. And... uh, so we can say that about the record first off what you were saying andy like it is also the kind of late era record where many people i think of a younger generation i mean she loretta had really kind of been out of the public eye in pop music for a big in a big way and she was pretty solidly just on the country charts in the 80s so she hadn't really been she'd been pretty out of like the music world for 20 some years at that point so it was like a lot of people's introduction to her and my first association with her, and I think it's that kind of album too. It's just like introducing people to an artist that was kind of forgotten about in a way. For sure. I mean, I can be too cool for Jack White all I want, but I almost certainly owe almost my entire awareness of Loretta, Loretta Lynn to him. So there's that. Well, here's the story of my life. Listen. I'll do a quick um, run through of the bio for listeners who might be less familiar. Um, and yeah, anyone in, anyone here can jump in and add stuff when, when you see fit. Um, so yeah, Loretta Lynn, kind of like, in some ways, the epitome of like living your songs as a country singer. She's from Kentucky. Uh, she married really young as a teenager and learned to play guitar while she was navigating her first marriage, um, started a band with her brother, and uh, by the 60s became a pretty big figure playing in Nashville. <clears throat> and by the end of the decade, she was having pretty big hits on the charts. Uh, like Winston said, she's known as an incredible singer, just one of the best country voices. Uh, heartbreaking, funny, beautiful voice, but she's also a great songwriter. Um, and during the 70s, her writing, which was always kind of explicitly about being a woman, it becomes a little more political and uh, a little more feminist in terms of the subject matter. There's the pill, which was kind of controversial and led to country radio and radio in general banning her, which sound familiar. 
so by the mid 70s, she had a memoir about her life called Coal Miner's Daughter, which was made into a hit movie in 1980, starring Sissy Spacek. And that movie was huge and wins a ton of Academy Awards, including Best Actress. And all of this to say that by 1980, Loretta Lynn was the kind of musician who had a memoir and a movie about her career and a bunch of hits and a bunch of controversy. And it was kind of like a, a where do you go next situation. And uh, yeah, the 80s and 90s were a pretty tough time for that wave of like 60s and 70s country artists. Johnny Cash went through it. Willie Nelson went through it where they were kind of being thrown around from label to label. And so the 80s were sort of a decade of like lasts for her. She has her last top 20 single. She has her last album on a major label for a while. And in the 90s, she kind of follows that with sort of figuring out what to do next. She writes another book. She hosts a TV show called Loretta Lynn and Friends that I really want to try to find episodes of. <laughs> Um, she makes a trio album with Tammy Wynette and Dolly Parton. That's kind of big, but nowhere near any of the any of their peaks. And that's kind of where we find her on Van Leer Rose. Her recording output has slowed a lot. She has a sort of comeback album with uh, Still Country in, I think, 2001. 2000, yeah. That, 2000, that's a lot more traditional, almost adult contemporary leaning, so... When she teams up with Jack White, it's seen as this huge uh, resurgence, a huge pivot kind of comes out of nowhere. And so I think that is where, uh, similar to the Rick Rubin, Johnny Cash records, that's where a lot of her 21st century image as this kind of outlaw legend sort of begins. Um, and it, the album's a huge hit with mostly non-country uh, people like at the time, Pitchfork gave it a huge score. I think Spin gave it a huge score. Rolling Stone said it was the second best album of the year. And yeah, it kind of kickstarts this new wave of recognition for her. Memory from the past and say, child, this year is the family rose. We're going to get more into it later, but what, what do people think of this album? Do we like it? I was really surprised at how much I liked it. Um, I think kind of similar to what y'all have already like gotten close to, Jack White is also not really my favorite person uh, in terms of like the music industry. Uh, but I felt like this record felt very, I guess, natural for Loretta, Loretta Lynn. I guess it, it never felt like she was trying to like be or do anything that she wasn't like really comfortable with. And I think that that was kind of what, to me, like what makes the record really good is it actually does feel like a natural fit because it seems like Jack White at least had enough sense to kind of like almost get out of the way a little bit that he, he didn't put too much of his own like imprint on the record, I think. And I, 
think that that is kind of like what he he did enough to like make the record sound really good and to know like how to make Loretta Lynn sound like Loretta Lynn for the 21st century but then not be like hey let's put her in like a leather jacket or something like that like it feels very I don't <laughs> competent feels like the wrong word to use but it feels like Jack White kind of like knew what he needed to do and did it and didn't let too much of himself get in the way of that yeah I had a similar feeling about it where it's like I tried to listen to it with the ears of a 2004 listener where it's like you know now it's easy to think about Jack White as this kind of like Johnny Depp character type thing but at the time he was like pretty you know he was like new and he was kind of mysterious he didn't put his name on a lot of different projects and I think at the time it was done in a way that you know, I think I would be more annoyed by this if he ended up producing like five more in like a Rick Rubin, Johnny Cash kind of way and it mm. set up like a template. But as far as a one-off album for Loretta Lynn, I, I have issues with it, but I didn't find it to be, I wasn't annoyed by it or I didn't find it. I found it momentarily obnoxious because of Jack White stuff, but overall I thought it was a cool album in her catalog. And I also thought it was cool, kind of like looking at the timeline of it, like by 2004, the White Stripes were kind of entering their like peak powers, I guess. Like it seems like, you know, in terms of that, it's I think it's kind of like cool and interesting that you're like starting to peak in your fame. And then like, what do you do with that? You take it back and then like go put your creative energy into making something relatively interesting with like a pretty major music legend. I feel uh, with some of the things, a lot, I feel sort of the opposite way about the record to a lot of what was just said, but like, I will say, I think it's very cool that he did it. Yeah. Like at the peak of his popularity, I, uh, I do think that it, it feels juxtaposed a lot. I don't want to get into this too much cause it, it comes out on a song by song basis, but I mean, to me, like the sound of like country politan and like Owen Bradley produ- producing her records with the, her extremely like organic present like just so warm and bright voice in front of everything like and the playfulness of that and like I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm being uptight about musicianship but these are like just like the like alt country like band sound basically kind of on a song like Mrs. Leroy Brown or something you're getting the exact same musical treatment as like don't go home a drinking with loving on your mind or fist city or that kind of like driving song but you're just getting it with like it's kind of like the honking on bobo effect to me not to be rude but just like an overdriven version of something that was played much better and done before and kind of feels like it is like drowning out what is so great i think it's something about like the juxtaposition of her singing these like attitude songs over the kind of music that she traditionally did it and even when she progressed in experiment with different rock styles and like kind of more adult contemporary and soul styles in the 70s and 80s she was evolving but this you know this does feel it feels very calculated in a way that is like sometimes successful to me it's the same way as the johnny cash recordings you know where some of those feel like the bands in the room and it feels good and some of them feel like something has been stuck over an instrumental like little red shoes or something to me which is just like serves to be like I have a lot of thoughts on that one I do too like here is this person Loretta Lynn who is famous and I'm working with her and we're doing uh, I'm bringing in my friends and we're gonna jam with her Um, and but I will say 
there are so many original songs on this. It's like something must have inspired her to write this. Like, there's no album in her catalog that has this many original songs on it. And so that is that is relevant, like, just to... You can hear her on the best tracks, you hear her having fun. It sounds like they're having fun. And then on the, on the worst ones, it just is like, I really wish this had a different band that could play better behind it. Yeah, I'm, I think, sort of in between. I also think I probably have the most sympathy toward Jack White of anyone here, it sounds like. I don't, like, keep up with his... N- his new records, but like I did love the white stripes at the time. And I still could, I think could get a fair amount of enjoyment out of like at least white blood cells or everything up to elephant. Like if someone put it on, I would not be mad about that today. Uh, And like I said, like had, had this album not come out, uh, would I be as interested in Loretta Lynn as I am today? Like probably not. So I feel like I can't really discount it, but like after having been offered a way into her music through this album, like I can say that I like almost probably just about every record of hers that I've heard better than this one. Mm-hmm. Like even though it was the entry point, uh, it would be like the last record that I would uh, suggest to someone as their entry point, uh, having like learned a little bit more about her music. Uh, I, I I wasn't really familiar with her her recent work other than Van Leer Rose until we decided to do this episode, and I have done a lot of listening to like the stuff that came before it and after, and like it's to me it's sort of dovetailing with what Winston said it's just more pleasurable to hear her in an environment with like you know it's funny th- this album i feel like there's a certain thing of like well we got to get rid of that nashville slickness or something but like those are some of the best musicians in the world yeah. like there's a reason that they're pros and uh i don't know like the pedal steel playing on her Nashville records is just better than like the pedal steel playing on this album. So I'm glad it exists. It's cool that it's like a different sort of look at her music. And like I said, it was definitely an entry point into her music for me. But I think the thing of it being like this kind of landmark album for her feels a little twisted to me. Uh, It feels like it was uh, afforded more this kind of a status that, any one of her other albums might be like more deserving of. Yeah. I, I, I want, I'm glad you brought up the more recent albums. I, I reviewed full circle, which is the album that came after this 12 years later, like in 2016. And I, I think it's her best album of the 21st. I really like it a lot. And I think it, it has some new originals, has some old originals, has some like folk songs that, that she, that meant a lot to her as a, as a, as a uh, growing up and uh i just think it it makes such an infinitely better case for what who she is as an artist as a and i do think that like despite the fact that she's her name is on these a lot of these songs and they deal with the themes that she has dealt with without her career it does feel like really placing her in other contexts sometimes in the in a way that almost feels i don't want to say exploitative but just like like full circle gives like a really it almost like gives you a tour through her her career and musical outlook in a way that 
well, I don't know, that just gets drowned out here because in those sonnets, simple, simpler contexts, you hear a lot more of her, the playfulness of her singing and she has things like that really adept guitar playing to play off of. It's like another voice in the song that she like interacts with. And so kind of bludgeoning, in some of these songs, at least when I was listening to her voice, sounds kind of drowned out or compressed, doesn't have the same... Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I sound. You stop. You know. Please critique me if I sound too like traditional. But I was trying to be open minded, and I just didn't. I just found that like the songs didn't breathe as much. You know, it, or the meaning didn't. Her vocal performance is normally so affecting, and I. I did find that. Don't get me wrong. There, the more stripped down songs on here are, are. A lot of them are really nice. Stuff like Family Tree, I thought was beautiful. You know, um, and Miss Miss Being Misses is great too. That was like the the single and I know a lot of people love that one but thinking about her as a songwriter and thinking about those classic Nashville albums um that yeah I think I think she had the you know all the albums, their kind of the concept was there'd be a really great kind of like attitude song that she wrote that would be the center of the album, the name of the album, and like Fist, Fist City or Squaws on the Warpath, Rated X, whatever it is. Um, and then there would be like a lot of other people's songs and traditional songs, and then maybe a couple more of hers. But it, it was kind of like each album was like a highlight for like one of the best country songs ever written by Loretta Lynn, you know. And so it is kind of crazy to see this re- this Loretta Lynn record that is all these new originals, um, and it kind of it's like a new. It makes her out to be like a different type of artist. Like the, it's like this real like auteur statement of a that that people would eat up at that point. Like in the two thousands, it'd be like, oh, she wrote all these songs. She's not just a country singer. You know, like she's more than that. And thus, like the prestige kind of crossover thing to me that's at least that's how i kind of read it now looking back reading some of what was written about it it was like she's actually important you know one thing that just sort of struck me as as someone who was mostly familiar with like her 60s and some 70s stuff is like uh the subject matter on these songs being so um and not in a bad way um just familiar she basically throughout her entire career returns to songs about her upbringing in um, Kentucky, songs about infidelity, um, and, uh, you know, songs about kind of simplicity of life and with that, like, you know, faith in God. But it 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 sort of reminds me of, like, some painter who who spends, like, decades kind of like painting still lifes or something trying to get to the some deep essence like through returning over and over again uh to kind of the same subject matter like it's sort of like incredible to me that um you know 50 years on from her start like she's still finding new ways to write about being a woman who's going through uh a spouse who's cheating on her like it's it's like it's like Scorsese and gangsters or something like that. <laughs> like uh, I just I find I find that sort of like impressive and like almost uh, noble. 
Allison, what, what do you uh, what did what do you think about that, or what what did you what made you what songs or or like elements of this record did you like the most? Well, so it's just interesting hearing y'all. It's just interesting hearing y'all like talk about your perspectives on this record out loud. Um, I think be, like it's just made me realize how differently I think we have all like perceived this record. Just like the the ways mm-hmm. that y'all have been talking about it are not. That's, that wasn't, like, stuff that I had been thinking about with this record because, like, to me, what I found really impactful about this is that, like, and I think kind of why I like this record is because it, you know, Loretta Lynn is somebody who had, like, a really long and really impressive and, like, really, it's just, like, a really incredible career that she worked really, really hard for. And, you know, she had, like, a real, she had a tough life um, mm-hmm. before that. And, you know, like, being a woman in the music industry when the entire time that she was in it could never have been easy. But um, to me, I, you know, this record kind of made me think about the ways that like our culture and the music industry, especially treats women as disposable, um, especially kind of once they get past a certain age. Um, you were just talking about kind of how, you know, after the seventies, she was like less productive in the eighties. Um, and, you know, it's like this record was kind of a big turning point you know, to kind of like bring all this attention back to her again, like I said earlier, like in the 21st century and, you know, really revitalized her career. And, you know, it's a record that she sounds really comfortable on. She, like y'all have said, like, she sounds like she's having fun. Um, I think that the, you know, the little red shoes, the like song, I think that that's a really interesting piece because if you like, look at the kind of story she's telling, like, you know, whatever you think of, like, what the kind of jamming going on in the background is, like, whatever you think about that, like, the story that she's telling in that piece is, like, really kind of wild. Yeah, it's crazy. And they told mommy that I was going to die. And that happened like three times. So I didn't walk with on the spot. It was kind of a mess. All I forgot about the shoes was shoot. Like, I think that this record is, like, a really interesting, you know, portrait of a woman who's had, like, a long life and a long career and, like, still has a lot to say because, you know, as you pointed out, like, this is some of, I think, the most original songs she's had on a record. And so it's, for me, it was cool to, like, think about this record as a record, you know, like, of, you know, Mm. where this woman was at this particular point in her life. You know, she had kind of had this period of fading away for a little bit, but now she gets, she's like spent the last years like living to see people like celebrating her again and, you know, Mm -hmm. touring and, you know, getting to kind of have this later revival that a lot of artists like never got to appreciate. And I think that that's, that to me is like something that is really interesting about this record is that like it, it's kind of like a, it's like a refusal to just kind of like slip into obscurity. And I think that that's like really powerful for her. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I also, I was thinking about what you said, Andy, with the idea of it was your gateway, but you wouldn't recommend it as other people's gateways, mm-hmm. where I think that is true, like when you've spent time with everything that came after it, where it's like, she's made a lot of records since this one that sound more like a traditional Loretta Lynn record. But I, a part of me is like, I don't think that I would have like, because I guess I was like 12 when this came out. I don't think if it was one of those records that had come out at the time, I don't think it would have captured my attention the same way. Right. You know, 
Like, I kind of think it's, which is what I mean when I talk about like listening to it with 2004 years where I'm like, at the time, we didn't know that she was going to go back to like her old school way of making records, you know? And so it's hard to say like, which one would serve as like a better late era statement for her. But yeah. Totally. And listening to to you talking just now, Allison, does sort of like change my perspective a little bit because it's like it's still not my favorite Loretta Lynn album. Mm-hmm. And, but it does like I what you're talking about, uh like I feel like it did sort of grant her this new uh like level of recognition that like in a way that maybe a more traditional sounding or like a, a a record that sounds more like an old Loretta Lynn record or whatever, like wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like it it was this kind of like it did something really interesting and powerful to her kind of legacy and her career that like I don't know that another record would have done. And it seems like good that that unambiguously good that that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I agree. And it complicates my feelings about it. I agree <laughs> that it is unambiguously good that it happened. And definitely like it's so rare for so many artists to get a shot. And you see, and you see older country singers of, of, of her generation or after like, you know, like, I feel like maybe this isn't a great example, but I was thinking about like Tanya Tucker recently, like getting some more attention for her record, things like that. People who are, were these really unique voices for female country singers at a certain time, kind of getting revisited and how that was like nowhere on the scale of Van Lee Rose. And so, yeah, it's very difficult because I'm just sort of talking, trying, I was sort of trying to talk on one level, just completely aesthetically and musically about how this functions and also like what kind of makes her old music powerful. And there is this thing about how you view Jack White's role in this or how you like literally hear it to me. The thing that I think we don't sync up on is exactly is, is the way, you know, Jack White's at the height of his popularity, right? He's like this auteur rock guy and he's coming to produce and very much produce this record and so when i hear something like little red shoes which is like if you take the music away that's what loretta lynn sounds like that's the pacing of her talking in an interview and that's the story those are stories that she has that's you know coal miner's daughter that's like autobiographical things that throughout her career has been in her music only this time it's it sounds like there's been an instrumental written to the pacing of her talking which is like okay so maybe that's powerful or maybe it feels a little weird to me i don't you know maybe it feels like jack white being muscly and maybe it doesn't um and so like maybe like turning up the amps and like doing like a distorted bow diddly thing over like what uh what's it called the blues kind of the blues one uh have mercy like maybe that's some maybe that's like loretalyn wanted to do it you know it's it's hard to sometimes it just feels like the Jack Whiteness muscles out the other thing, but that sort of subjective vibe. I just think that when her, you know, I I didn't I didn't hear her her voice and her attitude as being necessarily served by the instrumentals and the treatment all the time, uh, which maybe doesn't count for anything and maybe is a completely subjective thing. But I do think it's worth noting that like 
when Loretta Lynn came back with records after this, they didn't get anywhere near the same amount of attention. It wasn't like Loretta Lynn was revived and then everyone cared again. It was like people were really fucking into Jack White. Like that's a big part of it too. I mean, talking about like sort of an outlaw thing, he was providing with her with what is kind of like an edge, quote unquote, like at the time that was his thing and got people to take her seriously along the lines of a certain criteria. So it's, I'm thinking back to like when it came out and, and reading the pitchfork review and reading like a lot of dudes writing about the record. And it, it, it felt like Jack White's imprimatur was a big part of why people cared about it. Does this make, does this make any sense? It's like, yeah, yeah you know, it, I mean, isn't that also kind of like what, like that was also kind of like the point of it, right? To, I mean, to a certain extent, it was like Jack White saying like, hey, I have this like power and visibility. Let me go like leverage it behind something that like people should actually get behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just that I guess it, then it comes down to an aesthetic question of just the music and like how it's it's very good that he brought attention to it. But like, how does the music work? Like, how does it sound? How does it feel? There are times when it really feels like it coalesces and then there are times where it feels more like artsy or juxtaposition. Maybe let's get into some of the songs where it really works because uh, there are a few I thought were great. Well, maybe let's yeah. start with Little Red Shoes because we've talked about it a little bit. This is kind of like an outlier right in the middle of the record. And this one definitely got my attention the first time. But I think my major issue with it is her voice is so low in the mix. Yeah, yeah. you have to listen. really have to Ex listen in exactly. to what he's talking yeah. about. Which is like kind of cool to me. Like it reminds me probably just because I've been watching a lot of his movies recently, but like it reminds me of like watching a Robert Altman movie where you mm. really have to strain to hear the dialogue, but like on purpose because it like puts you into this kind of weird environment that like you can't just coast through. Like you have to sort of uh, pay close attention if you're going to get anything out of it. And, like, I heard it the first time and it breezed by and I was like, well, maybe I should listen to this and actually, actually sort of, like, expend some effort on hearing what she has to say. And then I had, like, a whole other experience with it. Uh, so I, I came to, to feel like the, the mixing of it was in a roundabout way, like, kind of working in its favor. Yeah, that one reminded me a little of um, that uh, Gil Scott Heron record mm. that Richard Russell did. Where oh yeah, yeah. That's a good thing. That's a good comparison to this record. Yeah, that was totally. an album I was thinking about a lot. Um, where you know that's an example of like the complete one side of the spectrum. Where like in interviews at the time, Bill Scott Heron was like, "I don't feel like that's my album." You know, I was in the studio and he would ask me to tell stories and sing something or other, and then he would craft it. And I don't think this album is anywhere near that side of the spectrum. But mm. yeah, to me, that was a song where it was kind of like. The movie thing I was thinking about was um, in Barton Fink, when uh, <laughs> Barton Fink keeps talking about how he's a storyteller, and then every time John Goodman actually tries to tell him a story, Barton Fink's like, exactly, like, <laughs> you know, these are stories where I'm kind of like, this is sort of like, you know, in interviews around the time, Jack Lloyd was really singing the praises of Loretta Lynn as a songwriter, and he said that was the part of her, you know, career he wanted to celebrate with this record, which, uh, you know, I think... He does, and but it's like when you get to the most like personal and the most, you know, off, like in one sense authentic, which is I think a word that like got tossed around a lot with this record. It does become this kind of like artful, almost psychedelic moment. Um, but yeah, I kind of wish 
for me that it wasn't an outlier on the record. I almost wish that was the tone of it, that kind of rambling, something that's sort of happening that you're privy to kind of conversational thing uh, that works for me. Um, another moment that, uh, that is like definitely bears the distinct imprint of like Jack White because he's, uh, the one singing, uh, but also because it has that same sort of like rambly quasi psychedelic thing you're talking about, uh, is, uh, I want to say which, which song is it that ends with this coda of like Jack White sort of mumbling amazing grace. It might be the end of women's prison. Could we hear that? just like this kind of totally unexpected moment uh but that i found similarly to what you were saying about red shoes sam whereas like this is quite weird and is an outlier on this record but like i almost wish i was hearing more of this kind of weirdness here what was your favorite song allison i did really like portland oregon that was one that i've like when I put the record on for the first time, I was listening to it in the kitchen. And then as soon as that started, I was like, what is this? And like, where is this going? Because the, it's just like the kind of weird, like psychedelic sort of start to that one feels, you know, that was like not something I would have encou- expect to encounter on a Loretta Lynn record. But I, yeah, I was surprised at how much I liked that one. Again, even the fact that it's like a Jack White duet, which I am would be like really resistant to I like was surprised that I liked it that, that was the big one from the record too like uh, I, yeah. I saw it was on like the Pitchfork's list of one of the greatest songs of all time or I forget what it was or of the night of, uh, I think just like the two, 2000s or yeah. 500 songs yeah I think I was less resistant to this when I thought about how important duets have been to her throughout her mm-hmm. career totally. like all the Conway Twitty albums so I'm like well it's a cool like kind of throwback to that mode but musically this is like so white stripesy like especially yeah. that part yeah. riff yeah yeah there are there were moments where it's like okay Jack White definitely wrote that guitar part right like <laughs> yeah. and I guess maybe it's a way to just not like taking any writing credit is a, a way for Loretta Lynn to make more money off this record, you know. But there were a few musical gestures that it's like sort of hard to believe that he didn't have some oh, hand. Yeah, oh, the entire syntax of this song is like a white stripe song, right? Like even when it dick ducks out for her to sing and then comes back in, like that's all over the white. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is like an arrangement thing, also though. Yeah, but it feels like that is an arrangement thing that is a Jack White thing. You know, he does that so often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean anything about, like, who wrote what. I'm just saying, like, it function beyond even the guitar riff, the way the song is put together is, um, it, it, and, like, the uh-huhs, every, everything. It, it yeah. leads one to believe that he took the most active role in writing it, but I could be wrong. Another thing that I kind of thought about, like, with this record was, you know, trying to think of it from the mind of, like, okay, 
and this is kind of the way that I have, you know, that I listened to music a lot as a teenager was being like, okay, this is one artist who I really, really love. Let me like absorb everything they've ever touched. And so I was thinking about like, okay, what if I were like a really excitable White Stripes fan in 2004 and wanted to hear everything Jack White did and Mm -hmm. listen to this record. And like, I think that, yeah, the, like it does bear some like very obvious like Jack White touches. And I think that like, if this had been the first thing I had listened to, you know, like coming into Loretta Lynn for the first time and had heard these things that like felt kind of familiar, but still kind of, you know, comfortable, I guess, to a certain extent, and then got into the Little Red Shoes. I think that the Little Red Shoes piece is almost like, uh, it almost feels kind of sneaky in a way, if that makes any sense of just like, yeah, here's a singer songwriter who's, you know, got all these great songs, but then like, there's so much more to her and her life beyond like whatever you get on this record. Um, and I, I like, to me, I think that that, again, kind of thinking about this record as something that a white stripes fan might pick up. It to me, like was interesting to think about the little red shoes piece as kind of a, I don't want to like tease doesn't feel like the right word either, but to kind of say like, Oh, but you know, this isn't, yeah, this is more than just like a, a few good songs that there's like real, there, there really is a lot more to dig into here. Yeah. It's like a hint of the, the wider world that's there for you to explore if you uh, choose to. Yeah. That one feels like the Gil Scott Heron moment on it. And it's worth noting, like, you know, her, one of her biggest commercial, her like biggest commercial success of her career, the coal miners daughter memoir movie album, like, it's all centered around her as a storyteller. Like the songs mm-hmm. are storytelling songs. It's a memoir. Um, that's been a, a huge part of, of her career. Um, and, and here it kind of feels like taking a story from her and putting a backdrop to it, um, which does give you a sense of, of who she is as an artist, but it's a very different presentation, I feel like, than, than all that stuff was, which she took a really active hand in. And, I think of it as like in the very basics of her career, there's a lot of little red shoes. Uh, one thing I found myself thinking a lot while listening to it is like, this is, it's such a hard balance to strike when you're dealing with this kind of late era release where mm-hmm. it's like young producer with a really identifiable sound, legacy artist who has so much work behind them, you know, and it's like, like Allison was saying, it's like, you can hear Jack White trying to be like, how do I make this sound like alt-rock music or alt-country or whatever in 2004? And then on the other hand, you hear him as a fan of Loretta Lynn being like, what's the album I want her to make? So in some ways, to me, this strikes a cool balance where it's like, you know, the side of him that's like, I want Loretta Lynn with a band in a room playing a bunch of songs she's newly written, you know, with a producer who's not trying to like gloss it up. On the other hand, you get something that's like, you know, we really need to crank up the amps. Like, I think I read somewhere that, like, her family has never been a big fan of this record. But it's, you know, I think because it's, like, probably the furthest from, you know, like, classic country that she made. I just was going to note that all of her subsequent work has been co-produced with her daughter and recorded at her house. Just, I don't know. There, There is this kind of sense that it bounced back from this. Yeah, and so, I mean, for that reason, I think, like, the way it stands out alone in her catalog makes me approach it differently. And, you know, when you compare it to records 
that follow a similar formula of, you know, like a currently popular fan sort of working alongside an older artist they admire. I think it doesn't fall into the traps that something like the Gil Scott Heron record, which I also like, does fall into. Yeah, that's the thing is like the Gil Scott Heron record is good. Yes. You know, like, and so there's a question of like, we're talking a lot about, you know, authorship, uh, which is important to think about, but there, you know, the authorship of the record and the kind of musical experience of listening to it are at the end of the day, in my mind, like two sort of related, but different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Gil Scott Heron record is an interesting case because it's one where he felt completely divorced from the authorship. But as a listener, you can approach it and be like, this is a, mu- a moving, beautiful record and I'm happy to be listening to it. And I was kind of considering uh, Van Leer Rose in opposite terms because I, I definitely approached it uh, at first from the perspective of like, it, this just sounds like Jack White doing his Jack White thing uh, all over Loretta Lynn, and I don't want to hear that. But the the more I thought about it, um, I was kind of like, well, would, am I sort of like taking away, like who am I to say that she did not have agency and authorship in the decisions to make this record sound the way that it did? Would I be thinking about it the same way if she was a man? I don't know. And it sort of, it it led me to like something that I hate uh, that I think everyone here could relate to, People who like hate on the Jocko bass playing on Hijira by being like this dude who's just sort of like farting all over Joni's beautiful songs and kind of like making it about his ego. But in my mind, it was like Joni had a way that she wanted that album to sound and she picked this dude because of the way he played. And so he's like slotting into what her sort of vision for the record was. Not to get too mm-hmm. far afield from Loretta Lynn here, but I'm like, okay, maybe that's the same scenario. Maybe. Maybe Loretta Lynn, like, was, you know, this, maybe this is her autorist vision where she's like, I want to make this kind of record uh, and and Jack White is helping me do it. But at the end of the day, that doesn't make me like the music anymore. Right. Like, at the end of the day, like, I'm like, I would still rather hear this song without the sort of, like, caveman blues rock pounding behind it. <laughs> I would personally rather hear country prose playing these songs. So I'm like, I, I start my, the, the roundabout point I'm trying to make here is like, I was, I've been trying to think about the record less in terms of its authorship. Cause at the end of the day, I don't know what went on in those rooms and more about what's the musical experience of listening to it. And, and for me, I guess that's where it ultimately just doesn't exactly measure up to her other records, at least um, to my personal taste. Yeah, I want to be clear with my criticism and saying that, like, I think his heart was very much in the right place, and everything that she said about the record, at least at the time, was was very positive. Like, she enjoyed doing it. Um, it does just come down to sort of like, like, as opposed to the Gil Scott Heron record, everything is like kosher. You know what I mean? It's it's more a question of like. Yeah, whether whether you enjoy listening to it, like in terms of like the critical mechanisms that we use 
to like be like I see what this was doing and like this is why it was important for her career and a good thing and this is what it shows it, it's just like a great opportunity for someone in her position to have this late career moment that's all great and totally on point do I like listening to it not very much at least on the ones that aren't really just kind of going acoustic kind of getting back to being like a slightly updated more alternative treatment on uh, and strip back like you know you said gloss it up and when you're earlier, Sam, and uh, not that you're disparaging that or something, but I feel like that's how people talk about it. It's like, oh, you know, without glossing it up. I'm like, what is wrong with glossing it up? That stuff is amazing. Like one of my favorite Loretta Lynn songs is her version of Snowbird, which is like an Anne Murray song, like an easy listening classic that she like the most like kind of glossy uh sort of lightweight by contemporary standards thing. So I feel like I'm making some kind of like optimist argument or something about about Loretta Lynn's career that's like I do not I do not enjoy the like reading those reviews talking about it being authentic. I appreciate Jack White trying to highlight her as a songwriter, but I think that there's a complicated reception thing with that which does feel like discounting some of her best work and trying to recontextualize her in a palatable way to people who wouldn't be receptive to that music, which is a complicated thing, which is both good and bad. I feel like what we've been trying to talk around is to like figure out where on the axis this record lands of like, it's true that Loretta Lynn has made, has perhaps made better records, but also Jack White has also made much worse records than this. (laughs) True. Howdy there! Hi there! This is Ian Wayne. I'm the I'm the mix engineer uh, for for the Late Era podcast, and I'm here with with my bandmates in um, Office Culture. Uh, I'm here with Charlie Kaplan. Hey there! Uh, with Pat Kelly. Hi. And uh, of course, Winston Cook Wilson, uh, co-host of of Late Era, and we're here today to talk to you about a, a product that we all love: Grady's Cold Brew. That's right. Grady's Cold Brew is is a New Orleans style uh, chicory cold brew that's um, made in the Why Bronx. Why are you talking in a voice? Uh, sorry, yeah, Just I don't talk know. Talk more like a normal guy. <laughs> Grady's Cold Brew is uh, <laughs> delicious uh, New Orleans style brew. Failed. I, somebody else should speak. Charlie's a big fan of Grady's and uh, like a, a longtime customer, just on his own, just privately, like independent of of the podcasts and. Uh, is an iced coffee freak like me on a level that only I think I reach. So Charlie, talk a little bit about your love of Grady's, your history with it. I'm a, I would like to think that I'm a longtime Grady's drinker and supporter. I don't drink it because I want the fame or the shine or because I have some big platform where I could like make it my brand. What are like, you trying to say? I'm just talking about Grady's. <laughs> That's an iced coffee hater. No, actually, I drink iced coffee and I like it. Um, just after I've had my hot coffee, it's an occasional treat, not a daily drink for me. Yeah. You're in luck, Pat, because Grady's makes hot coffee too, or you can make Grady's hot also. Oh. And, and I know that from having myself visited the Grady's website and used their code Late Era Twenty, right? Yep. Um, to get a discount on. A huge order of Grady's. Now, I ordered the bottles of cold brew because I'm a cool cat, but you're a hot feller, so you might be more <laughs> interested in getting the hot coffee. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. 
you heard it right from the from Charlie's mouth. That's right. We and, call uh, him Charlie Horse. Charlie Horse. <laughs> yep. <laughs> What's that in your trough, Charlie Horse? Ooh, I got a delicious combination of barley, hay, and Grady's original chicory cold brew. <laughs> Wow, that's gold. It helps me get started in the morning for a long day of work out in the fields. Don't be running too fast, we'll turn you into glue. (laughs) Usually we wrap up our episodes uh, by zooming out and declaring an album a fantasy or a delusion. Uh, That is our binary system for evaluating whether this record uh, is good or bad. And uh, it's named in reference to Billy Joel's classical piano opus, Fantasies and Delusions. Uh, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, wrap up the show by, uh, by rendering judgment on this album that we clearly all have very complicated feelings about that are not really reducible to a simple yes or no judgment, but uh, that's sort of the fun of it. Um, I guess... Well, no, someone else should go first. Allison. Okay, this is, this feels like a particularly, like, difficult binary. Uh, let's see. I, you know what? I'm feeling charitable and generous today. I will say this one clocks as fantasy. Perhaps not for me, but I think that if Jack White and Loretta Lynn were setting out to make, like, a pretty good sometimes fun listenable record together if that was like their greatest dream to come out of this project i think that like they got it but yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know it's it they did it yeah i'll jump in and say for me it's also a fantasy and it's one i'm really glad we talked about on the pod because it's such a interesting intersection of so many different kinds of late era releases it's like the commercial and critical breakthrough after a period of somewhat uh, um, not obscurity, but like of kind of being on the margins. Uh, It's the young producer revamp, which has been done so many times. It's like the stripped back reflection, like back to basics move. It's all those. And I feel like it only occasionally draws attention to being those things which is how it works for me is that you can listen to it as just being like a heavy sort of alt rock Loretta Lynn album from the early two thousands. There's nothing else in her catalog like it. It didn't influence a ton of her later stuff. It kind of just exists as its own thing and sort of sits among those white stripes records you were talking about, Andy of like a period when Jack White was sort of in his own world and doing something different it i don't think about the jack white who people tend to make fun of now i think about that jack white yeah and as for loretta lynn i kind of think about her strengths when i'm listening to it it doesn't sound like she's stretching or it does i don't know i was also thinking about like the miles davis doobop album <laughs> it doesn't reach those levels of like it's miles davis and hip-hop like oh yeah not even close no, no. it feels like a natural move for me and well, it's easy to say I would have preferred something that existed closer to the lineage of her, like the stuff she was doing in the 80s and 90s. It's kind of like, well, then, you know, we might not be at this point now. Exactly. Like, you know, an artist like her 
has taken a lot of risks in her career. To me, this feels more like a risk than it feels like a calculated move. And so for that reason, it's a fantasy for me. This is uh, one of those moments where, yeah, for me, the fantasies and delusions uh, kind of framework starts to break down. Back on Welcome to Chicago, we at least had three different options to choose from, 25 or 624. And if we were on a Welcome to Chicago episode right now, I think I would give this a six. But I know I have to choose. Uh, I often can't I can't ever decide whether my framework for fantasy or delusion is, am I glad this thing exists versus would I recommend mm. it to someone else to listen to? And exactly. am I going to listen to it for pleasure after this? Because by the first standard, it's a fantasy. And by the second standard, I think it's a delusion. Uh, but yeah, like I, I feel like I don't need to restate everything I've, I've already said. I'm going to just pick the second one because it feels more honest. You know, like I'm probably not going to go back and listen to Van Leer Rose for pleasure after this. And as as much as I'm glad for the things that it did for her legacy and uh, the fact that it sort of turned me into a Loretta Lynn fan at all, uh, I'm going to have to sort of uh, ruefully declare it a delusion. Yeah, I I actually I hadn't really thought about giving it a delusion ever despite everything I'm saying because as we've run through like all the the check marks of of whether this was a good thing for her and whether like you know people's heart was in the right place and whether it was like a cool cultural moment that's all on point it touches all of these different aspects of later albums that we've spent this podcast discussing but to me it's 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 fascinating because it really is like track to track for me just like it almost makes me think like i would revisit this record because of kind of these incidental interactions of moments that feel how do how do you interpret a moment how do you how do you like feel the interaction between two things in a way that implies like there's this power dynamic between the two of them that we talk about in like literal authorship what was happening terms and then there's the thing that you sense in the music and like on some songs some of us sensed chemistry and her having a good time and like you know coalescing as a unit like feel it felt live or something and then i at certain points felt the opposite way like there's this kind of implied idea of people being in a room together that the that the studio image creates so it's like there's there's all these different levels for how you can interpret the thing it just really doesn't work for me for the most part like anything with the heavy jack white guitar anything with like there's also i really find the drum sound really grating but i think i think it's also like i an aesthetic preference like i am kind of maybe traditional in a lot of ways with country music or i want to hear it like going way further in another direction um than this which is kind of like seems to reify some like idea of authenticity in country music on some level. It's like Jack White is an extension of the real authentic country music. And even the idea of like kind of like outlaw country and like what that means when Loretta Lynn and George Jones and Merle Haggard and all of these, all of my favorite singers in country, like were part of this movement that was essentially making country music more, like pop and sophisticated musically sophisticated in quotes and smooth in a lot of ways and how that made their voices that were so kind of 
steeped in these particular parts of the country and had this di- this kind of dialect and these specific inflections that really highlighted that made it stick out in such a beautiful moving way to me that like just like Jack White and his buddies like bashing away over it it's like a it's on a, and every and it's like yeah it's standalone yeah it's interesting formally it's good that she got to be out there at the Grammys and like so, sold all these records that allowed her to get a new record deal and do and you know just like be so much more in the attention but just like i don't think it serves her very well compared to her best music so that being said i'm going to give it a fantasy because i think overall it's a good thing for society and that's roller coaster that's what it's it's this is probably the most complicated record that we've talked about on this podcast like in terms of how i feel about it and the thoughts that i've had about it but what i wanted to say to close out you two Sam and Allison are much bigger experts on like country music of the 21st century than I am and contemporary country music and have both written beautifully about it. So for our listeners who aren't up on that as much and who might be like thinking about sort of the state of of country music in this century and the history of country music by listening to this, I'm curious what you would recommend that's being put out now that people should listen to some recommendations based on your expertise because i'm certainly feeling pretty out of the loop with that right now myself i mean she doesn't have a record out yet but i am like really excited to see like what mickey guyton keeps doing um you know like she's she's put out like some interesting singles uh i think in the last few months um man I'm excited for Casey Musgraves' psychedelic divorce record. <laughs> How country that's going to be, like, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, I'm, like, really, I think that'll be interesting, to say the least. She's great. Yeah. Yeah, all I do is talk about Miranda Lambert, but I feel <laughs> like for listeners who are into the rock country thing going on, on Van Leer Rose, The Way to These Wings by Miranda Lambert is a really cool, raw, rockin' album from the 2010s that I think sits in a similar zone at times, that kind of like crunchy, gravelly sound. Um, I was definitely thinking about that a few times. I mean, I also absolutely love that record. It's one of my favorite country records of the past few years, so I don't know what that means. Maybe Jack White. I was also thinking about um, Margot Price's first album, which was on Third Man, which kind of, I was trying to think if there's albums that I feel like took the template of Van Leer Rose, and there are times on Midwest Farmer's Daughter where I hear a little bit of that, like, sort of blustery blues sound. Midwest Farmer's Daughter is such a, like, Loretalin title, too. (laughs) idea. Oh, totally. Yeah, maybe Jack White's just clouding my vision. (laughs) It's hard not to. Yeah, that guy. That hat takes up so much room, you can't really see past it. We've got a bad on our minds. Allison, thank you again for doing this. Uh, this was a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, this was really fun. I haven't like gotten to talk with multiple people about records much in the last like year plus. So yeah, this was this was fun. It really is the joy of podcasting. <laughs> That's the only way times. we talk to each other about things, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, Sam, what do we have next time coming up? 
Uh, next episode, we'll be talking about Levy and Axel Rose, which is Axel Rose singing Edith Piaf. Oh, oh, oh yes. I've been wanting this one for a long time, so I'm glad. To... It's a classic. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening to Late Era. Late Era is hosted and produced by Winston Cook Wilson, Andy Cush, and Sam Sadomsky. It is edited by Winston Cook Wilson and mixed and mastered by Ian Wayne. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brickman and RJB. Logo designed by Lisby Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media.